Dr. Bronner's is a family business committed to making socially and environmentally responsible products. They build relationships with organic farmers and producers to create equitable supply chains. Fair prices for farmers, living wages and excellent working conditions, and investment in communities means respect for land and people. Check out drbronners.com.au to find out more about their products, regenerative farming practices, fair trade products, and ways you can help make the world a better place. Hello, and a very warm welcome to the Dumbo Feather podcast. I'm Nathan, and chatting with me on this episode is someone I've really enjoyed getting to know, Marie Lowe's, who you might know as Dirt Girl from the acclaimed children's television series, Dirt Girl World. Marie is an actress, a changemaker, a storyteller, and a farmer. And she has so much to say about how we can live in loving relationship with the planet. I was delighted by just about everything that came out of her mouth, particularly the practices she shares at the end of the chat around how we can do the work of regenerating our hearts and minds. Marie is also an ambassador for Dr. Bronner's Australia, which is how we came to meet. And I'm so glad we did. So given that the land and connection to land is such an important part of your work, I guess it makes really beautiful sense for us to start by chatting about the lands, well, that I'm on, first of all, and I'd love to hear about the lands that you're on. I'm talking to you from the lands of the Wadani Noongar people in southwest Australia. And this is land that I grew up on and is very special to me. So I'm on my family home. And right now, in fact, the weather and the climate is, is hotter than I think I've ever experienced in my lifetime. It's just been relentlessly hot days and there are bushfires happening right across WA at the moment. So the effects of climate change are really potent here and felt right now. It's a powerful time to be talking to you and this conversation around regenerative agriculture and regenerating ourselves just feels really important. So I'm really thrilled to be chatting with you, Marie. I'd love to hear a bit about the land that you're talking to me from. Thank you. Yeah. Today I'm coming to you from Bunjilang country and I would like to acknowledge the modes of custodianship and storytelling and regenerative thinking, listening, loving science that exists here long before I've been here and long after I'm here. All First Nations people tuning in today and ancestors in this country as well who have held me so profoundly over the last few months in particular and our non-human kin who have also helped me here can't forget them either (laughs) there were some birds in the background there just as you said that (laughs) (laughs) very fitting i'm actually in a very controlled space right now compared to what you would hear if i went outside so (laughs) yeah yeah you're getting the reduced volume (laughs) what is outside (laughs) oh my gosh it depends whether we're talking daytime or nighttime So daytime, there's a family of butcher birds that are around and there's one particular baby that is very noisy at the moment. There's a lot of frogs because it's been raining that we're getting to hear during the day as well. There's so many different types of honey eaters and there's been birds of prey. Here, this part of Bunchland country, the fires came through at the end of 2019 into early 2020. 
And before that, there was drought. So there's been concurrent and cascading ecological disasters as well as a societal strain for people. And a lot of the animals and creatures have really moved into this particular area that didn't burn. And it's interesting to follow their cycles a year later, two years later, and to see where abundance happens. Yeah, so there's daytime and the nighttime. We recently went on a nighttime safari and we saw frogs spawning. They were mating and spawning. Yeah, it was awesome and gnarly. And then there were yabbies that had moved out of the pond into the puddles around the edges of the garden. So we coined them land lobsters. And then, yeah, there were some fish as well that have showed up in the dam this inland dam and we're not really sure exactly how they came to be in this area there's an eel as well when we now understand more about that but the fish are pretty incredible and there was overflow from the dam so in the night time we could look at the overflow in the grass and kind of figuratively swimming on the lawn were these fish we nicknamed one Clancy of the Overflow and then when another appeared, we named her Nancy of the Overflow. Oh, Clancy and Nancy, yes. <laughs> oh, my gosh, the things animals get up to at night. I, that's, I'm so inspired by a night safari now. That's oh, yeah. And recently when I was here just a little while back as well, first I heard this cacophony high up in the trees outside my cabin and I thought, what is that? And I went outside with a fair amount of intrepidation and there were two black coels, two male coels wells which migrate from Papua New Guinea um, down sort of from September onwards and they were locked on like dogs and they were fighting because there was a female coel in the area and I just love that sort of piecing together of story and and whose naturehood I'm actually in yeah yeah brilliant oh (laughs) that's so great (laughs) what a picture thank you (laughs) my pleasure (laughs) so absorbed into that world (laughs) so let's tell everyone a little bit about what you do you're an actress and a presenter storyteller change maker a gardener say an urban farmer Dirt Girl, of course, is this wonderful production that you star in and educates children and families about protecting this world that we love. And it's become an international smash hit. It's won an Emmy. It's pretty incredible. So that's the kind of bio. But tell me how you would start to describe the work that you do. You know, I'd say that I'm at a stage in my life of unlearning and relearning. I try to start by deeply listening and it's something that I haven't always been as good at and that's obviously relative to what matters to you but that's a big focus for me at this point in my life. So I grew up at the intersection of Bunjilung country, Gumbangye country and Yeagle country with paddocks to the horizon. I always really understood that we were part of this embodied network that we call nature and that our lives are inextricable with one another, our human and non-human kin, and also that there is a legacy of First Nations custodianship wherever we are. And then I kind of went through this motley path of exploration into social justice because that's what I grew up around. And my parents were very low-key people but were definitely intersectional change makers on a very, very local level. And they would never really call themselves that, but that's what they did in every part of their work. And they listened to and walked shoulder to shoulder alongside marginalised communities. And I've kind of carried on that legacy. So for the last decade, I've been an alter persona Dirt Girl from Dirt Girl World and Get Grabby TV on ABC here in Australia, but in 128 countries around the world. And yeah, we've kind of cultivated this international 
international community of next generation planet dwellers who understand that we protect what we love and that nature first is second nature. And that's taken me to hang out with farmers, families, and again, traditional owners and really stand by their sides to hear what regenerative thinking means for them, not always in that language or those terms. And then how we can work together to write a better story for the future as they envision it. Yeah, and then that's taken me to explore regenerative agriculture. I also have a background in psychology and Indigenous studies. So mental health is a big part of what I do. So really a very kind of buzzwords at the moment, but regeneration and resilience are at the core of what I do. Yeah, beautiful. There's so much there. I mean, I just love, I love learning yeah. about what you do. <laughs> you touched so many different points. So let's try and unpack it and win our time together. First of all, I just wanted to bring you back to something you said at the start there, which is around you love to start by deep listening and this work that I do and over the past eight years of being involved with them before the listening has really been central to how we can live well together and how we can hear one another into beautiful work in the world. I've noticed in my eight years together that listening has just kind of crept up as another word that people really talk about is very important but I worry sometimes that when that happens these words start to lose their meaning so I'd love to just hear from you about what starting by deeply listening looks feels like what it means for you. Mm. I think it comes from understanding that I'm stepping into someone else's backyard, someone else's land room, someone else's community hall, that again, there is much that has existed and will continue to exist before and after I'm there. And to understand that this is about participation and contribution, not about heroing anyone's self. Rebecca Solnit has done some really interesting work around the potential problems of heroes in grassroots action and change making. And this is definitely a time where I think we need to move more back towards and in some ways forwards towards a stronger sense of collective action. So I try to remember that. And I guess sometimes it just comes from ironic because this is all about talking today, but sometimes it comes from not even going straight into asking questions, just hanging out, just being, hearing, I think as well. So it also comes with truth telling. That has to be really the start. You know, I think understanding your truth, understanding what you're bringing into a space, which comes from ongoing reflection, not on the day that you're there, but as daily, weekly, yearly work. So knowing what you're bringing in and also knowing how to put it down, I think, so that you can be present and really hear people, not just listen, but really hear them and also hear ecosystems, you know, hear our non-human kin. Yeah, that's beautiful. I really agree with you that there is so much that can be said in the states of silence and pure presence between two people. So thank you for reminding me of that. And also reminding me that listening is also about listening to the context, you know, listening to the before and the after of what comes before us and what comes after us in this moment in time. And of course, the ecosystems that we're part of. And of course, listening to one another as human beings, which is what we kind of focus when we talk about listening. So just love all of the directions that you took us in there. So thank you. I want to go back to Dirt Girl and what you've learned in particular about what excites and inspires young people, because that's really been uh, one of the incredible successes of this program is how you've inspired young people and their families to take care of the earth. And I'm really curious about this, having little nieces and nephews and watching their love for our beautiful planet. Uh, It seems so instinctual to take care and to love planting and to love seeing things grow and to love finding insects. And this sense of caretaking is really seems quite inherent, especially in the little people that I'm surrounded by. And so I wonder if a part of it is instinctual, and I'm really curious just to hear, hear your thoughts about what ignites this sense of care in young people. 
So I'm really lucky. I work alongside some people who have a really strong grounding in education and then my background as well is also in psychology and developmental psychology and then just spending years with young people. And one thing I've learned is that othering is taught. You know, whether we're othering fellow humans who might look or sound different to us or whether we're othering species that are not human species, we start off on this planet with a pretty deep sense of empathy and we're geared towards love. It's part of our evolutionary techniques, even for survival, we are geared towards bonding. So I think a lot of what we've seen in our ongoing colonial and capitalist societies is very conditioned. While this is a story that we live with now, there have been other ways of being in the past and there can be other ways now and in the future. And that's why it's important to listen to other communities. I think kids are incredibly accepting. I think they have a bountiful capacity for awe and wonder and an unending curiosity. And these are all really key parts of resilience and regenerative thinking, whatever our age, wherever we land on the lifespan, a capacity to listen, a capacity to play without attachment to outcome. That's where creativity can come from. I've spent so much time with young people and with little kids who will want to tell me about their garden or about their worm farm or about the cherry tomatoes that they grew. And they'll have a half-eaten cherry tomato and put it in my face and say, you want some? And their joy is so real, but as much as we connect because they know that I care about what they care about, it's also at its core about showing up and making them feel seen and heard and loved and validated. And so that's really, for me, as much as we have these layers that sort of happen underneath and on top of that are about planet care and how we can look after each other and our world. It's very much about sharing love for each other as well. And and that's what I've really come to understand. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. And I know that story is a really big part of your work as well and that your mission really is connecting people through stories. Maybe you can share a little bit about how story has come to be part of your mission and how you've seen the value and the potential of it. Sure. So there's been communities all throughout history who use story to affect change, to cultivate meaningful behaviour change, to divide each other, to bring people together. And so I'm really just a very tiny part of carrying on that very diverse and long-standing legacy. But I've been among storytellers and you don't have to do it for a job to be a storyteller. Some of the most amazing storytellers do it at their dinner table or around a fire in their backyard or at bedtime. But it has become something that I do. And I'm around really amazing people who know how to do it incredibly well. You mentioned the Emmy that we won for our multi-platform storytelling. And I just think at this point in time, we're so overexposed to information and it can be very difficult to sift through that. We've lost a lot of capacity for nuance as well. And a lot of our media and information has become monopolized. And so I think hearing good stories about good people who are doing good things every day has never been more important and we can be disruptive by sharing this goodness and however you want to get it out there whether it's a conversation at your local cafe or whether it's through social media or through a television show or a show on an escort like Netflix or Stan 
it's all powerful and it all matters because we are meaning makers at the end of the day. It's one of the things that separates us from our non-human kin. And you have this term, uh, restoration, which you talked about a little to me last time, and that was a new term for me. Do you want to perhaps just eliminate us on what that word means and then how it informs your work? Yeah, no, I'd love to. So it's a relatively new word to me as well. My mum was a linguist before she was a social activist. And I understand that language is such a powerful tool. I'm really interested in eco-linguistics and sociolinguistics. So when I hear a word that's a good tool, I'm like, yes, I will gratefully take that. So restoration is a word that I encountered first in Robin Wall Kimmerer's book, Braiding Sweetgrass, which I know you've been hearing a lot of quotes from. First of all, restoration generally is about actively engaging with our own story, the story of how we belong to place. And in her book, Robin explores how people's creation story, her people's creation story, establishes a fundamental difference in how they see themselves in relation to land and non-human kin compared to the Christian creation story of Adam and Eve. So in Robin's creation story and her people's creation story, and this is going to be a redacted version, so I implore you to please go and listen to Robin's words in the first chapter of the book and they should come from her, not me. But yes, in her creation story, Sky Woman falls from the sky and with no land to hold her, a council of beings gather to help her and one little muskrat ultimately gives its life, his life, so Sky Woman can live on and tend to this one good green earth amongst not above her non-human kin. And then Robin looks to the Christian creation story where Eve was castigated and banished for engaging with the fruits of nature. And she talks about how children are told these stories and they form the basis of their understanding of their place in the world. And she talks about how one of these stories speaks to a democracy of species, a reciprocity between human and non-human kin, while the other one teaches humans that we're separate to nature that it's not for us to explore the joys of nature and also that all life beyond people was created by a human-like being. So using this paradigm, Robin asks, how can people in communities who other nature restory themselves, so restoriation, to return to standing alongside the embodied network of life that we call nature? How can we return to stand alongside our non-human kin? And then another woman, she emigrated from the Philippines to the US. So she sees herself as a settler there and she has taken her own journey to understand where she belongs and how she can belong to place, given that she is a settler in many ways. So her name's Dr. Lenny Strobel and she extended upon this idea of restoring ourselves and what it means for non-Indigenous people as a way to decolonise inherited narratives and a way to decolonize ourselves and heal our relationship with land. So Dr. Strobel asked questions like, where does meaningful truth-telling need to start? How can we belong to place on stolen land? What does being Indigenous to place mean? And also, which is really important, how can we listen deeply to First Nations voices and experiences as we undertake this work? Hmm. Okay. At first, I thought it was an invitation for kind of more mythology in our culture, more myths and stories that will shift this relationship to the non-human world. But there's so much more to it than that. Mm. Well, it's interesting you say that because a long-term collaborator and I, we are wanting to explore this, as you said, very nuanced conversation further here in Australia particularly when it comes to the narratives that we tell our children. So how can we change our relationship with ourselves, nature and our non-human kin? And obviously we 
have to start with a deep and bold and difficult truth-telling in this country that still has not happened yet, absolutely. But, yeah, we're really fascinated with this term at the moment and really wanting to explore it in our work. Yeah, it sounds like there's so much possibility there. I don't think we needed the dominant story anymore. I think we can have many different kinds of stories that have this particular orientation. We kind of have this culture of not great storytelling happening at the moment, you know, with the news and the monopolisation of media. And we've kind of been trained into just consuming the shortest, most succinct parts of the stories that are being told. And so I'm always curious about how we can encourage one another to get to these deeper, richer, meaning-making levels of conversation and, and storytelling. Mm. I think getting offline sometimes. We mm. Mm. we can access so much online. I don't want to dichotomise or demonise the digital realm. And in many ways, what we see... And acted online is an extension of our general human propensity towards kindness and violation. But I do think that for me, being in a cerebral space doesn't serve me particularly well if I hang out in it for too long, for too much of each day. And we also know that the way that our systems regulate dopamine, being on social media for too long or using it as like experiential avoidance isn't very healthy for us. So getting out and actually spending time either with our local community, whether that's people or in our naturehood, as my friend Kate McQuillan calls it, it can't be underestimated, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm, beautiful. You mentioned something the last time we talked about how you think of story as love letters to the planet mm. that really resonated. Just remind me of what that connection was and what that looked like for you when you said that. Many of us understand that we're at a tipping point in humanity and planetary boundaries and we have both a personal and a shared global and existential yearning to know that we're heading in a direction that we believe in. We have witnessed a lot of exploitative and extractivist modes become more and more dominant on this planet. And while there's so much that is happening and it feels like it's outside of our control, I think there's so much that we can do on a daily basis, on a weekly basis. And part of that for me is about writing love letters. I am a part of an ongoing chain of story and life that, as we said, started before me, will go on after. I'm inextricably connected to the networks of life around me. So while I can't really control what the realities are when I leave this planet, I can write love letters as I go. And sometimes those love letters are divesting my super, my energy provider, my bank. Sometimes they're understanding who my local MP is and writing to them, connecting with them and being an active citizen and understanding the power of democracy or what it can be when we are active citizens. Sometimes it is just going outside and sitting by a body of water and practicing what Auntie and Dr. Miriam Rose Ungamer Bauman calls didiri, stillness and deep listening. That is an act of love. That is an act of rebellion in the world that we live in. So, yeah, there's just endless ways that we can live love letters to the planet and to each other. Mm-hmm. It's really special because it's about an orientation, about a way of walking in the world that you've chosen, an intention that you bring to every action that informs, maybe not every, but a lot of the decisions you make. And it's present in who you are and how you navigate the world. And I just think there's so much wisdom in that active orientation and intentional commitment. So you mentioned that I might not live a love letter in every single way. And that's a really interesting point you bring up because in the prologue to this yarn, we said we were going to talk about my recent reckoning that regenerative thinking needs to start in ourselves and ourselves and then move outwards to each other and to country. And that's really important because the times that I don't 
live my values, that I don't enact my values in the way that I expect myself to or that I hope to, is when I'm not putting that same deep listening into action with myself, that same reflection, that same compassion. The things that I give to others when I don't give that to myself, even if I want to keep giving it to the planet, I've learned that I have to give it to myself as well. Otherwise, it's not sustainable. Otherwise, I'm not being truly regenerative in my core. And that's been a really big learning curve for me over the last probably 18 months to two years. Yeah, wow. I was really struck by in our chat before was this connection you made between the work in regenerating the land, which is your outer contribution that you give to the world, and then also the work in regenerating ourselves, that there is this important parallel there which you're starting to uncover for us. And that's something that I really believe in and essential to the work we're doing at Dumbo Feather and Small Giants, that we have to start with self before we can even attempt to heal the systems that we're a part of structurally, but also a lot of the damage that has been done to our land. I think you had some practices perhaps even that you might want to share Or perhaps you want to just give us a bit more around how this parallel came to you and what it looks like in your daily life. Yeah, so neither of my parents are on this planet anymore. My mum died when I was 15 after dedicating every possible ounce of herself to other families. And my dad, he died last year and my brother and sister's dad died in the same year as well. So loss is something or change. Change in relationship is something that has been, I guess, consistent somewhat in my life as it is in nature and in many people's lives. But I cared for my dad as his primary carer until the last few months of his life. And it was profoundly challenging for a whole number of reasons. I found myself really in a habit of modes of domination and depletion. I was pushing myself to cope in ways that I wasn't truly coping. I was telling myself stories that weren't necessarily the truth. And I was expecting something out of myself that wasn't sustainable. And sometimes we have to do that. That's life, you know. We need to respond to the demands of the time. And sometimes we're not expected to behave like that forever. But because of the challenges of my dad, it really asked me to go in and have a deep truth telling about my family and things that I learned about how we look after ourselves or how we don't, how we put community first and what that can mean for ourselves and our families and explore, I guess, what truly regenerative thinking means to me at this point in my life as a planet dweller, as a storyteller, as a wife, as a friend, as a sister, as an auntie. And so it it raised a lot of questions and I started to feel more and more transparent as a person who worked in regeneration and resilience, the more depletive I was being with myself. So it really, for one reason or another, just implored me to do some really, really deep and honest work. It became more and more apparent to me that this regenerative thinking really does need to start in ourselves. And obviously, in an ongoing colony like Australia, that's absolutely true. We've spoken about needing to have a truth-telling around the history and present of this country. But where are we starting, you know, and how did we get to where we are? And what have we got in our tools to move forward with? What do we want to leave behind? How do we embark on a lifelong mission to listen because healing is ongoing? And even really basic things like for me, 
going outside each day and listening and switching on my senses. That was absolutely core to me healing as a human being. And I know that that's a really core part of modes of regenerative agriculture, permaculture, First Nations knowledges, and similarly being clear with goals, other things in Regen Ag, like doing the work in small and simple steps, accepting feedback and failure as part of growth, trusting the process, you know, all of that. Like there's just so many through lines. Yeah. So it's a little bit different to self-care. <laughs> well, it's a lot different to self-care, which, you know, it could be easily interchangeable, um, I think, at first. But there is so much nuance between those two things in there. This is such an important conversation to have. So, you know, we talked about resilience and that I work with people to cultivate resilience in uncertain times. And that really ties into this self-care notion. I've been really lucky to go to the Great Barrier Reef with people who have large spheres of influence and hang out with them in a nature immersion and talk about the really brutal realities of our time and the climate crisis that we are faced with. And then how do we stay connected to what matters to us? So I mentioned that I have a background in psychology and traditionally resilience as a term is used to refer to someone's capacity to endure stressors. So it can be internal or external stressors and then bouncing back to a relative baseline of okayness. But we're facing a future where what's possible is consistently shifting. And in times of disaster, so whether it's natural disasters or something like a pandemic, our baseline then has to shift as well. And not just our personal baselines, our shared societal and global baselines. And we've all lived through this over the last two years. So we come to this question of how do we find consistency in our habits when we're consistently navigating quote unquote unprecedented times? And this is where I think we need to have a more nuanced conversation about what resilience and mental health mean within our emerging reality. And I think we can move towards talking about adaptability and something called psychological flexibility. So psychological flexibility is about this. It's how do we move towards what matters to us when the goalposts keep moving? So when the scope of what's possible keeps changing, how do we stay connected to what matters to us? And I think that that's really and truly the challenge of our time, you know. I think this is the work for our species at this, you know, tipping point in humanity and planetary boundaries. It truly is, yeah. I felt my whole body wanting the answer just then. I, for some reason, thought you were going to tell me how to do that. But, of course, that's not. It's the question that we need to be living, not the answer right now. I it's okay if you yeah, don't. It's the but it's, yeah, it's yeah, yeah. I have some ideas. I have some ideas from research. I, I don't in any way purport to have the answers. These are unprecedented times for me as well as a private human being, as a planet dweller and as a professional. It is challenging when you're someone who said, let's change our habits, let's move towards what matters to us and then everyone's capacity for thinking outside of surviving just shifts because that's really where a lot of people have been at. You know, I was watching the drum the other day and they were talking about how Australians have been on this knife edge of apathy and then just absolute exhaustion. I think utter exhaustion was the term. And so I feel that as someone who put up my hand and said, let's stay connected to what's possible, we need to be at least trying out these tools ourselves. So I do have some offerings, but I'm not saying they're the answers in any way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Would you like to share some of them now? Or? Yeah, yeah, I'd be happy to. Yeah, great. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, I should. This would be a good time to mention that I am also doing my master's in disaster resilience and sustainable development. <laughs> through and that's, that's through the through the UN. You said. Yeah, through the UN and the yeah, University yeah, of Newcastle, cool. which is on Awabakal yeah. and Waramai country. Yeah. 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 So you've got your undergrad in psychology and you explored resilience on a personal level and then this master is looking at our personal resilience through disasters or the resilience of the land through disasters? Less so. I definitely have been hanging out with people who are exploring our land's resilience through disasters, but that's probably happening more on the ground with the regenerative ag community and with First Nations custodians, traditional owners, even Indigenous rangers who I've been really lucky to hang out with and listen to and learn from. In the academic context that I'm doing my postgrad, it's very much about the human vulnerabilities to hazards and disasters, even the definition of disaster is when conditions overwhelm human capacities and existing supply chains. And you don't have to necessarily completely subscribe to that definition. I personally don't. When there were fires, I don't believe there has, quote unquote, been no loss of life just because a human being hasn't died. I'm obviously really glad that there has not been any loss of human life, but there, of course, has been loss of many lives. So the Masters in Disaster Resilience is really interesting and it has definitely taken me to the crux of an intersection of multiple industries and what we can do and what is possible and what are the challenges. Yeah, so I've really been enjoying it. It has really stitched together my background in mental health and then my background with families and communities and then also my background in environmental education. It's sort of brought them all together. And I was just also going to just add in there some language that you used last time, which I wanted to share, which was cultivating resilience amongst cascading challenges. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Just, just tell me about that little nuance of cascading challenges and why that's important. Yeah. Cultivating resilience amongst cascading disasters. Cascading disasters is a term that comes from the disaster risk reduction industry or the disaster resilience industry. Okay, I'll give you a really concrete example. I mentioned the farm that I'm hanging out on Bunjilan country and I said we had a drought and then we had fires. And then after the fires, we had floods. And then we've been in a global pandemic for the last two years. Now, there was not space between one of these uh, realities that overwhelmed local and national and global resources and the next. They were cascading. They overlapped. And that's where, for me, what we're talking about with resilience, that's why we really need to shift this conversation because this idea of bouncing back to our relative baseline, if the baseline keeps moving, it becomes more about adaptability and psychological flexibility than that traditional meaning of resilience. So I would say that we're facing a present and a future of cascading challenges or disasters. And that's why this conversation is, as we said before, really one of the greatest challenges of our time. It's the work for our species at this yeah, tipping point in humanity and planetary boundaries. All right. So we know this. Help us. Yeah. <laughs> what would you recommend as a starting point, as you said? Yeah. A few quick places that I think we can start. One is by practicing updating our expectations when we receive new information about a situation. So sometimes we try and hold on to what we thought was going to be the case. And we really need to hear when we receive new information. And then we need to try and find a capacity to update our expectations. Another one is, I think, setting a period of time where we can truth tell and acknowledge the challenges that come rather than pretending things aren't difficult. 
I don't think we want to stay stuck and re-traumatizing ourselves by talking about it over and over. Obviously, systemic injustice is different. I'm not saying we should put a time frame on talking about attempted genocide in this country. I'm talking about on a more personal, interpersonal level, because sometimes if we talk about things over and over, we do re-traumatize ourselves. But it is important to feel seen and heard by the people who love us. So I think allowing ourselves a period of time to acknowledge challenges and then move forward as best we can. The next I would recommend is by allowing our worlds to become a bit smaller. So I think it's really important at this time to embrace our local communities, our local experiences as well. So what we can do within our bioregion or within our communities and also localise our supply chains. And that's something that so many people tuning in would be well aware of. You know, they've watched how our supply chains have been disrupted during the pandemic. And so it's kind of a no-brainer to say that a great place to start localising ourselves is with our food systems. So, you know, the local farmer's market is a really fertile place to, to do this, to ask questions, to try produce to find some sense of consistency and buoyancy when global supply chains are shifting so much. So I mentioned experiences and this really ties back into your, you know, you flagged self-care. And while self-care is important, there's a kind of more nuanced and complete set of tools that we can tap into. So there's a psychologist by the name of Nicola Perra, and she talks about how coping teaches us that we can tolerate discomfort. And when we are experiencing cascading disasters, we need to cultivate some self-belief that we can deal with this. We can't all put up our hands and say, we're not going to do what matters to us anymore. As human beings, people are meaning makers. We need to feel some sense of existential connection, at least to each other. And so Dr. LaPera, she talks about these different modes of helping ourselves return to balance. So one of her sets of tools that she talks about is soothing activities. And that's where ideas of self-care really come in. But she also talks about activities that build endurance. So these are the activities that we might experience short, controlled discomfort. But within that, we realize that autonomic system goes back to a healthy baseline. We go, oh, okay, I can be uncomfortable and be okay. So things like yoga, yoga is a really great example of that as well, because we learn to breathe through the discomfort and understand that it's temporary. So I really love that. I love that idea. At this point in time, we need to be cultivating not just soothing activities, but also activities that build our endurance. And then the last one really that I had to offer for now is what we've already spoken about, which is that one of the most powerful antidotes to feeling despair is action and that we can really pull many levers to vote for the kind of future that we yearn for. And I love Noam Chomsky, as many people do. And he talks about how not knowing where to start can be a symptom of privilege because when you are in the face of need, you just do, you know, when it's in your world on a cellular level. Oh, of course. Does that make sense? Like we've been so able to act on our needs. Yeah. And because we're hearing about everything, but it's not necessarily in front of us. And it sort of serves to educate us, but completely disempower us at the same time. And I would say it's also a symptom of overexposure. And we've also been conditioned as well towards convenience and consumption. So even when we hear about something that can feel really uncomfortable or really confronting, sometimes we go, oh, the world's so fucked. I'm just going to put on Netflix. 
I have moments where I do that as well and I am privileged to be able to do that sometimes. There's also been times where I've not. I've just had to act. I think remembering to get active is really important. Remembering to get active on a local level is really empowering. And if you don't know where to start, start by listening and then go from there. Marie, that's so useful. Thank you. It was well worth that wait. (laughs) 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 Together, I feel like it's the the swan song at the end of the opera. That was really, really awesome. If it's okay with you, we can publish these on the Dumbo Feather website. Please, yeah. I think that'd be a great resource for people to have. Yeah. And so just in conclusion, we you know, it's, I just wanted to mention that we we came to connect through your work with Dr. Bronner's mm. uh, a partner of ours. Yes. And and they're supporting you in your work uh, in championing regenerative agriculture. And we haven't actually talked a lot about regenerative agriculture. No. And um, perhaps <laughs> do you want to touch on that now in conclusion and also tell us a little bit about that work that you're doing as an ambassador with these regenerative farming practices. So as I mentioned with Dirt Girl World and my other work, I've spent the best part of the last decade working with First Nations communities, families and farmers. We've talked a lot about that, but more recently, Dr. Bronner's asked me to join their family because they also understand that the system needs to change and they're very passionate about regenerative agriculture, which is something I've been helping to elevate and champion in Australia. So, yes, it's really exciting. So we're going to be working together. They're going to be lifting up the storytelling that I'm doing. In May, we hosted a screening of Kiss the Ground, um, which was really beautiful, and then had a panel discussion. We're going to have more panel discussions happening this year. And they are just incredible at walking the talk. You know, they work with small-scale farmers all around the globe. They stand shoulder to shoulder with them. And they listen to what they need in terms of writing a better story for their futures. And then they will also integrate that into their supply chain. So it's a pretty amazing story. And when it comes to working with the private sector, I have a lot of boxes that need to be ticked for me to feel like they are truly being regenerative. So, yeah, so it's exciting to team up with someone who wants to champion my work and then in turn I'm learning so much from their global community as well. Yeah, sure. Did you want to talk a little bit about what it looks like for you in your regenerative farming practice? Yeah. In Australia, there's been a long legacy of conventional agriculture since colonisation. There's also a whole realm of First Nations custodianship that didn't just exist before colonisation. It has also existed throughout and during. I hope that over the coming times, we hear more about that. Someone who I love is a Waramai man and a farmer, Joshua Gilbert he's doing really important work around this. We're at this point where we're needing to do better because we know better and also the challenges that farmers and graziers and even small-scale growers are facing have shifted and are continuing to shift. We have a climate in crisis. We have a number of different challenges that we're facing. So it's a really good time to take stock of what we know and where we're heading. And the regenerative agriculture movement in Australia is incredibly exciting. There's people like Charles Massey, Tanya Massey, there's Nicole Marsh, as I said, Joshua Gilbert. There's so many small-scale growers as well that, you know, Young Farmers Connect champion. And since I started with Dr. Bronner's, I have also been lucky to start working alongside some of these women who are part of the changing face of farming. Beautiful. Marie, thank you. Thank you for this love letter. Thank you so much.
big thanks to Marie for being our guest on this episode and sharing so abundantly. If you have little ones in your life, make sure you check out Dirt Girl World on ABC iView. Our next issue of Dumbo Feather is all about systems change and how we can radically pivot in the context of environmental and social crises. It's going to look and feel a little different, so keep an eye out for a new book Dumbo Feather, however you get your mag. That'll be later in March. Dr. Bronner's is a family business committed to making socially and environmentally responsible products of the highest quality. Check out drbronners.com.au to learn about their cosmic principles and ways we can all help to make the world a better place.